I'm going to read Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. There's nothing that uh, quite speaks of Mother's Day so much as to talk about suffering. But maybe that's not far from the truth, in the sense that in the midst of our greatest joys are also some of our greatest griefs, some of our greatest pains. I can't remember if I've uh, told this story before, I tell it a lot, but um, there's a story of a a Sunday school class where uh, a bunch of kids are in front of a Sunday school teacher, the Sunday school teacher says to the kids, we're going to play guess what? And the kids are like, yes, I love this game. And so she says, I want you to guess what I'm talking about. She says, what I'm thinking of is small, it's brown, it's got a bushy tail, and it likes to eat nuts. And most of the kids are just like space cadets. But there's this one kid just sweating it out like you can see the internal tension going on in him. He's just sitting there, and then finally he sticks up his hand. She goes, yes, Johnny. And he goes, miss, I know the answer's Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. Because one of the hassles of coming to church is that people always keep on telling you that the answer is Jesus, but they never listen to your question. And today, I'm going to say to you that the answer is Jesus, but I'm not going to say that straight away, because you can't get to the question of how Jesus answers suffering before you actually take a journey into the pain for a bit. Because in some respects, suffering is perhaps one of the biggest questions that we ever face. 
And it's an enormous question because it works at two levels. It's both philosophical and personal. It's philosophical because we demand an explanation. We want to know why, but it's personal because the primary thing that emerges for us is how can you comfort me? How can you console me? How can I go on if this world is this way? And most of us, let's be honest, come at this topic personally. There's very few of us who sit there and ruminate on the philosophical problem of evil most days of our life. What we think about is, why did mum die? Why did my friend's marriage collapse? Why do I have this chronic illness? And yet when you come to actually try and get answers on suffering, you don't get personal answers, you get philosophical answers. You get people trying to give an explanation. And that stands to reason because personal answers can only really be given in the context of conversation, whereas philosophical answers can be preached, they can be lectured. So let me say right up front that your story matters. And I don't know your story, and I can't know all your stories right at this very moment. And so today is but the first word, not the last word. And the real action from today will probably happen in the conversations and the personal interactions that result from this talk not really the talk itself. And that's okay. Because I want to start today by acknowledging the fact that suffering is a real problem. To which you might respond, you're well done, Sherlock. They've obviously got in an intellectual giant this week. He's worked out that suffering is a real problem. And yet the reason I say that is because so many people treat suffering like it's a puzzle to be solved. Like it's an exam question you've got to get the answer right to. And if you're just smart enough, you'll figure it out. But I want to say, if your first response to suffering is to explain it rather than to weep, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Because this world can be truly awful, even as it is filled with joy. It can also be filled with gut-wrenching pain that confuses and crushes, and nobody is helped when we deny the pain. People say things like, oh, it's not that bad. Yeah, it is that bad. In fact, sometimes it's worse than bad. And see, the interesting thing is one of the biggest responses that the Bible offers to the problem of suffering is to open up a space for tears. Because the Bible is actually filled with passages where people pour out their pain to God in a thing called lament. There's actually an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, which is written in response to a national crisis in the life of Israel. And right in the middle of the Bible, there is a songbook, which we call Psalms, which is like God's 150 top songs. <laughs> and in that top 150, it's interesting to note that 60 of the 150 include some substantial element of lament. The run we read earlier, the psalm we read earlier, is perhaps the most savage of them all. Here's some excerpts. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Some translations flip that around and they end that psalm by saying, darkness is my only friend. And that's how the song 
finishes. Now, most Christians actually largely avoid these parts of the Bible, which means there are actually substantial portions of the Bible which Christians have never engaged with. The Psalms have up to 40% of their songs expressing lament, but many churches I visit, most of the worship would struggle to get one lament in it a year because worship's got to be happy clappy. I love Jesus. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. What happens when you're not happy? I wasn't trying to make you laugh, but you know, I'll give it a go. There's a guy called Carl Truman. He wrote one of the most brilliant articles. You can look it up on the internet where he says, what do miserable Christians sing? What do miserable Christians sing? Because there's plenty of material in the Bible, but not always in our songs. The problem of suffering is legit. And God's first response is to hear your tears. Because far from shutting you down and telling you to man up, put a sock in it, build a bridge, let's get over it, God actually deliberately designs a space where you can speak your pain. In fact, the Bible is oriented towards helping you articulate your pain. God actually provides a language for us to put our pain into words. He gives us lyrics and says, when you want to yell at me, here's some good things to say. Because pain is horrible, pain is confusing, pain is so absurd that sometimes what you need from a friend is the space to be opened up so you can scream. And that's what the Bible does for us. So no one should think that suffering is an easy problem to solve, nor should we think that the first thing we do is explain, because God agrees with you that things are not the way they are supposed to be, and you should weep and mourn and wail. And yet a point will come where your heart will turn from grief to thinking. A point will come where beyond only wanting to cry, you'll want to actually ask, why? And throughout the ages, many people have tried to give very, very many smart answers to this question. And this is not a philosophy of religion class, so I'm not going to take you through all the possible variants, although that would be fun. I'm going to focus you on the one that Christians regularly focus on, and that is what's sometimes called the free will defense of evil. The free will defense, in a nutshell, argues that evil is the price of human freedom. Evil is the price of human freedom. In order for us to be truly human, we have to have genuine choice. And that means a genuine choice for the possibility of good, but also the genuine choice for the possibility of bad. And because we have the potential not only for good, but also for bad, so much suffering is the result of bad human choices. And intuitively, that explanation works well. Someone chooses to drink and then drive, and tragedy results. We choose to eat junk and wonder why we have a heart attack. We choose to spray around pesticides like they're a garden sprinkler and wonder why a million species are on the edge of extinction. No, no, humans must be free, but the price of their freedom is that they can act in ways which hurt themselves, which hurt others, and which hurt the earth. And that's what we see. That is evil. And intuitively, I think we know this explanation has a measure of truth in it. It explains quite a bit. We are our own worst enemy. I do a survey of my students when they come to their first semester unit with me, a worldview survey, where one of the questions I ask them is to tell me, what do you think is wrong with the world? And I can say whatever they want. They'll get a mark as long as they just answer it. And with like 95% plus, we'll always write people. People are what's wrong with the world. People are sexist. People are racist. 
People are ignorant, but it's always people. We are what stuffs the world. We are what stuffs the world. Intuitively, we have this sense that somehow if you remove humans from the equation, then a lot of the suffering goes. Not simply because we are the ones who suffer, but also because we are the ones who cause it. It's a good explanation, but it isn't enough. It simply isn't enough. Not by a long way. Because how do I explain those experiences of suffering which seem to bear no tangible relationship to human free will? How do I explain a tsunami that wipes out tens of thousands of Sri Lankan villages? How do I explain or process when a person who is like the cleanest living person I know, like they've followed Healthy Harold since they were five, okay? They've never eaten a piece of bacon in their life. They get cancer and my chain-smoking grandmother sails through life into her senescence. How does that work? Not to mention the disproportionate way that suffering is distributed. As a matter of fact, if you are white and you are Western, you are objectively likely to experience less suffering in this world. And suffering appears to pay no attention to people's character. You can be beautiful or a bastard, and terrible things are going to happen to you. That seems to be the way that life works. So this attempt to explain everything as the result of bad human choices, and somehow it's all just our fault, and we can all just kind of plug it into the template and sit there and go, see, bad choices, you, that's what's happened, end of story, let's move on. That doesn't help in any and every situation. In fact, it is never enough. And when people try and do that to you, it doesn't actually bring comfort. It actually brings rage. In general, a comprehensive explanation of suffering fails us. We do not possess a global theory of every experience of pain that we can then plug in our experience and go, see, that's what's happening. This is why when we are in the midst of searing pain, the worst person in your life is the explainer. In fact, the worst person in your life is the Christian explainer, let's be honest. You all know what I mean. There you are, lost in a world of confusion and pain, and some pious twit gives you a call, gives you a house visit, and the one ministry that God has bequeathed to them as their duty in life is to come over to your house and quote Romans 8.28 to you. You know what it is. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And you're sitting there going, I'm dying here. And they're saying, God's got a plan. Well, maybe that's true. But you don't know what that plan is. And I don't know what that plan is. So how about you just drink a cup of shut up? Because from whence comes this desire to explain everything? Whence comes this desire to utter some stupid platitude in the face of every experience of grief. Because it seems to reflect the basic presupposition that what God has given us in the Bible is a giant explanation book because it's huge. It's got thousands of pages. Surely there's an answer in there for pretty much anything. And that simply isn't true. And even the Bible tells you that's not what it's trying to do. Because in the centre of the Bible, right near that book we call Psalms, is another book called the Book of Job. The book of Job is, is, is a series of dialogues about a guy experiencing profound suffering and having his friends try and interpret it for him. And a lot of Christians think that the book of Job functions as the biblical answer to suffering, which is fascinating because if you read it, there are hardly any answers in there. 
In fact, the thing that you experience when you read the book of Job is you experience awe, but you don't experience an end to your confusion. Because Job cries out for an answer, and he doesn't get an answer, he gets an encounter with God. That's a slightly different thing. See, much more what Job is about is the failure of friendship. Because a large part of the action in Job involves Job talking with his so-called friends about his suffering. And for the first few chapters, these three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they stay silent. They just sit with him. They're present. Good job. And then one by one, they start opening their mouths. And that's when the problems begin. Because they just keep on trying to say to him, this must be your fault. This must be something that you have done wrong. And it goes on and on and on. And those talkative men should just have shut up. They should just have shut up because they cannot explain. They think they're getting it right. And the end point of the book is that God comes in and says, those guys had it completely wrong. Job was right. See, the Bible offers us enough guidance for suffering, but it doesn't offer us a complete explanation. And I don't intend to go beyond the Bible. Now, in a moment, I'm going to explain why I think the Bible gives us enough to go on with regards to suffering. But to begin with, before I go there, I want to explain that suffering is a problem for every single worldview, no matter what your worldview is. So for a Christian, the problem of suffering is quite easy to summarise. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why wouldn't he prevent suffering? It's very simple, very logical, tractable. And yet we might sit there and go, well, that's easy, then just eliminate God, and suffering's no longer a problem. But you see, suffering is a problem if there is no God. Because what if suffering is just natural? Here's why that's a problem. We experience pain not just as pain, we experience pain as something that should not happen. Human suffering is never just pain. It's pain mixed with the conviction it shouldn't be this way. And so when Richard Dawkins and Bertrand Russell, premier atheists of the 20th century, tell me you shouldn't expect anything else from a world of blind, pitiless indifference, I think they are being authentic to their worldview, but they leave me with a problem Because in that framework, pain still hurts, but it has no significance. So what that means is when my high school friend grew up and in his 20s fell dead of an aneurysm on his kitchen floor and his three-year-old found him, I should say, that hurts, but it doesn't mean anything more. That's just what you expect. And when my friend took her own life, the pain was gut-wrenching, but ultimately I should just shrug my shoulders and say, crap happened. Life goes on. I agree with people who say if there is a God, it is so hard to make sense of suffering. I agree with them. But I also say if there is no God, then when you experience suffering, it is only reasonable to say, ouch. It's not reasonable to say why. There is no why. And yet we want to ask why. In the middle of our pain, the why question erupts. The notion of suffering presumes a category that we would call evil, wrongness, badness, not the way it's supposed to be-ness. If suffering is just the inevitable consequence of living in a harsh, natural world, then why do I cry out? Why don't I just say, ouch, and be done with it? 
The universe has no obligation to make you feel significant. So stop looking for meaning and purpose. If you happen to have a pain-free life, consider yourself fortunate. If you happen to have a pain-filled life, tough break. You lost the lottery. That is one of the intriguing things about suffering. It's a problem for everyone. It's a problem for Christians. It's a problem for atheists. It's a problem for Hindus. It's a problem for Muslims. It's a problem for everyone. We all struggle to fit this. And so I freely admit that the Christian view of suffering is vulnerable to questioning. But I find that when I compare it to all the other worldviews that I can see, I find it's actually a more satisfying option, hard as it might be. Questions unanswered that there might be. Problems unsolved that there might be. And so before you give up on God, it would be helpful to acknowledge we all find this difficult. And so what is it that God offers us through his word? If I don't have the answer, do I have something, anything at all? I believe God has given us enough in his word for us to trust him. So first, I do think that the Bible gives us a descriptive framework for understanding suffering without providing a comprehensive explanation. Now, I'm really not trying to contradict myself here. What I'm trying to say is I think the Bible describes what has happened well without being, giving us the resources to explain everything that's going on. So the Bible does explain to us that this world was originally meant for goodness was made as a place of beauty under God's good rule, and it was intended to be a place of what the Bible calls shalom, peace, where people lived peacefully under God's rule. They lived at peace with one another in relationships of intimacy and justice, and they lived at peace with the earth in, way, in ways that made the earth flourish. And so the Bible presents an original vision of goodness, and then it puts human beings at the center as a linchpin in making that goodness continue to flourish. And therefore, the biblical narrative then says that the undermining of that goodness is predominantly the result of humanity choosing to take a different path than the one God has laid out for the world, choosing to rebel against his vision. And so, in other words, God makes a world which is capable of being harmed. He doesn't intend for it to be harmed, but the world can be harmed by our decision-making. And so what you see is when humans choose to rebel against their creator, the whole fabric of shalom is torn. People's relationship with God is ripped apart. People's relationship with one another is ripped apart. And people's relationship with the earth is ripped apart. And because we have been granted a central place in the story of life, when we choose to follow a different script, the story changes. Sometimes people ask me, well, why didn't God simply make a world in which suffering was impossible? Why didn't he make a world where we were never vulnerable to that particular malady. And I want to say, God never directly addresses that question. It's never actually addressed. Intuitively, many of us want to go towards the free will defense and say, without human freedom, something even bigger would have been lost. It's always better to make a world in which humans are free than if when humans are predetermined to respond to God. And I get that. It's just that the Bible itself doesn't give a philosophical justification what it asks me to do is to trust God that this is the best way to have gone about it. And that's all I've got in the end. All I get is a description of this is what happened. The world was made for goodness and we have rebelled and dragged 
all of creation down into our mess. And so therefore the Bible describes accurately my experience of the world, which is that this world is beautiful yet broken. It's beautiful yet broken. It says that our entire experience always keeps on bringing up the original beauty and goodness of this world, and yet everything is now shot through with brokenness, so that even in the best of our experiences of life, we always have this sense that darkness could emerge, that things could be temporary, that things are fragile. This is why we call post-wedding holidays honeymoons. Because we know that even in beautiful institutions like marriage, that goodness can also have darkness in the middle of it that has to be dealt with. My experience of life in this world is an experience of beauty and brokenness. Even in the midst of the best experiences, we know that darkness isn't far away. And so that framework describes my experience, but it doesn't explain specifically my experience. It doesn't explain why my dad got prostate cancer. It doesn't explain why your friend got on the wrong plane. It just tells you the truth that this world is beautiful yet broken. And yet the ultimate thing that the Bible is trying to speak to us, that God is trying to speak to us through his word, is not a framework for understanding per se. The ultimate thing that God is trying to communicate to us is a promise to fix the mess. The Bible is many things. It's history, it's poetry, it's love story, it's letter. But it's also a promise book. Promises made and promises fulfilled. And the primary narrative of scripture is that the heart of the story of God's pro- is, is God's promise to fix the mess that we have made of creation. That he's going to come and overturn what we have done. So that the primary response of God to suffering is not to give us a philosophical explanation. It's a promise of reversal. God's aim in the Bible is not so much to make sense of it all for you, but rather to proclaim to you he's doing something about it. The Bible is the story of God reversing the curse. It's the story of God restoring what is broken, redeeming the sinner, putting back together everything that has fallen apart since the Garden of Eden. And the Bible doesn't reveal all of God's reasons for what has happened. It reveals more so his intention to end our pain and bring shalom forever. See, what what is revealed and what is promised, God has not promised me an answer He's promised me a new creation in which there will be no more mourning, tears, or pain. And that leads us to the essential question that gets right at the heart of the suffering problem. Can God be trusted? If he's not giving all the answers, can I trust that God is good? I don't even know if I could cope with all the answers. I don't even know if my brain could process it. But can God be trusted? When he says he's going to fix this mess, can I look him in the eye and go, I trust you. I do this with my kids all the time. Particularly when they're younger, you do this with kids a lot. Because there's a whole stack of times with kids when you're working with them and you basically, you can't explain things to them. They've just got to trust you. Like vaccinations with a one-year-old or getting a five-year-old to eat broccoli or explaining married at first sight to anyone, you know, kind of like, <laughs> you've just got to trust me on this, I know what I'm talking about, you know, kind of like, time after time I've been unable to explain everything to my kids. And at those moments, I have to get them to look me in the eye and go, do you believe that I am for you? 
then just go with me on this. Just go with me on this. Can God be trusted? Has he shown enough of himself to be trusted even when you don't have all the answers? And this is where I come back to where the sermon began because for the Christian, Jesus is our answer to suffering because Jesus is the best reason for why God can be trusted. In particular, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that we see why God can be trusted. How do I know God cares about my suffering? How do I know he is going to do something about my suffering even when he doesn't fully explain himself? How do I know that his heart is for me? How do I know that he wants to bless me even in my pain? Because when I look at the cross of Jesus Christ, I see that God loves me so much, he will endure my suffering in order to set me free. See, it's one thing to say God cognitively knows about my suffering. It's another thing altogether to say that God knows suffering for himself. The Lord who I worship has scars. The saviour I follow has wounds. There's a poem written by a guy called Edmund Salido called Jesus of the Scars. It ends like this. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rose, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god had wounds, but thou alone. See, the obvious complaint of any human being towards any divine being is legitimately, you have no idea what it's like to be us. It's a fair call. But if Jesus is God, then something astounding has happened because God knows what it is like to be a person, not merely from the outside, but from the inside. See, Jesus on the cross himself sings one of the Psalms of Lament, Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means when I pray to Jesus, I'm praying to someone who knows what it is like to feel pain, who knows what it's like to be betrayed, who knows what it's like to be lonely, who knows what it's like to be afraid. In fact, who knows what it's like to suffer an unjust death. When God looked at the mess of my suffering, he didn't send words of explanation. He didn't send an essay with footnotes. He didn't send a care package. He sent his son into the mess. And then he went through the mess for me. And for me, I can trust a God who enters my mess, even when he doesn't explain himself always to me. But a God who merely dies in my place for me on the cross is nice, but he's ineffectual. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we see Jesus triumph over the power of death and suffering, not by cheating it, but by going through it. And in his resurrection, we see that his suffering body is renewed and his death is overturned into an indestructible life. And what the Bible says about Jesus' resurrection is that it is the beginning of the new creation. The resurrection points us, it's like the trailer for God's intentions for the future. And it signals that God's future is so certain because it has already begun. In the future, God will overturn the reign of suffering. In the future, death will be swallowed up in life. In the future, God will crush every enemy that presently crushes and destroys you and me. And this hope would be pie in the sky 
except for the fact of the resurrection. And if Jesus is raised from the dead, then as C.S. Lewis says, he is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Therefore, when I say that the Christian answer to suffering is Jesus, I'm really not trying to be trite or glib. I said it last week, I've bet my life on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Which is why if you've never encountered Jesus, you've never taken the time to examine his life, his death, his message, then I encourage you to do so because that, for the Christian, is where the anchor point is. Because I don't have a complete answer to your suffering. Like I said before, I don't even know if that would be helpful. Would it be helpful if I could do dot to dot on every event in your life and explain it all? Would that bring you the comfort you seek? Or is the comfort you seek knowing that there's one who has come to destroy your enemies of death and everything that takes away from your flourishing? So in the absence of an explanation, can God be trusted? Has he shown me enough to trust him? My testimony is that in Jesus, I see enough. There's a song by a lady called Babby Mason which uses this line. She says, I may not be able to trace his hand, but I can see his heart. I may not be able to trace his hand, but I can see his heart. See, in Jesus, we see God's heart for us, that he knows our pain and that he's acted to overturn our death and suffering that we caused or that others have caused or that something else has caused, but he has acted. And I have given my life to this trustworthy God because even though I don't always understand him, I know he'll get me home. So will you join me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're not trite and glib in your response to us. You're not trying to do for us what maybe we can't handle. You know that our suffering is a problem and you want us to cry out to you. You know that our suffering represents a barrier to trusting you and you want to meet us there. But you also want to show us that you have acted to deal with the root cause of our suffering. You have acted to bring us home. You've acted to overturn what it is that holds us back. You've acted to reverse all the incredibly terrible things that might have happened to us or happened to those we love. Father, we ask that you would cause us to trust you, to see in the face of Jesus the heart of God, to see that you love us that you intend good for us and that we can, in light of that eternity that you have purchased through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can see that these afflictions, whilst terrible, are temporary and that the answer comes not by explanation but by resurrection. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.